Welcome to Rebuttable Presumptions. I'm your host, Teo Simmons, and I have with me a very, very special guest. I have Jonathan Hughes. He is a partner at Planeta Hughes, a criminal defense firm in Halifax. Jonathan is a, a hockey referee. He's a former rugby coach and a rugby player. And I have him here today. Jonathan, how are you? Good, buddy. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you again as well. Thanks for taking some time out of your practice. I appreciate uh, you sitting down here today. Uh, it's my pleasure. And so I just wanted to talk about your transition and, and your path through the law. A big part of this podcast is about people that that do things a bit differently and they, they make their own path. Uh, I, I kind of call it a custom-made legal career. So I definitely want to get into that. But but first, I wanted to talk about your background in rugby. So, John, I met you probably first week of law school. Uh, we met before that. We took the uh, LSAT course together. Oh, we did. Yeah. I was, I was too nervous to remember you at that point. <laughs> My mind just uh, blocked it out. I was just thinking about the logic game section. Yeah. 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 Okay. We did. So John yeah. and I met writing the LSAT. Yeah. And so we met during the LSAT. We met again, thankfully, at law school. Yeah. So. And that was more when we started to get to know each other rather than focusing on the monotony of a standardized test. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's for another podcast. <laughs> I remember during the first week of law school, I see this big burly muscular guy he's got a perfectly groomed beard before beards were cool <laughs> and he's a really nice gregarious guy and then he tells me he plays rugby so instantly i'm like i've got to respect this guy i've got to stay on his good side so that was kind of my first uh, first thing with you i've got a theory on rugby players okay and so my thing on rugby players is every rugby player i know is very nice but I just feel, and I haven't seen the other side, but I just feel like this is not a person you want to cross. <laughs> well, I mean, there's an old adage that people kind of go for is that soccer is a, a gentleman's game played by hooligans and rugby is a hooligans game played by gentlemen. So <laughs> off, the, off the pitch, you often get a lot of collegiality, a lot of good spirits uh, amongst rugby players, but it can, it can get pretty nasty on the field sometimes, especially if there are high stakes for the game. Yeah, I see that. And uh, I played soccer growing up. And so I can I can definitely agree with that. <laughs> I can definitely agree with that. So, you know, one thing and we're definitely going to get into the law side. But one thing I did want to get into is I know in Nova Scotia here, there's been a bit of controversy with respect to a decision by the Sporting Foundation, the Nova Scotia Sport Foundation with respect to banning high school rugby. So my understanding is that the foundation abruptly banned high school rugby. You can correct me. I think maybe it was in the middle of a season. It was, yeah. And then there was, as you can imagine, a lot of backlash. The Nova Scotia provincial government reversed that decision. And now we're, well, maybe you can tell us maybe where we're at and, and perhaps give a better background uh, than, than what I gave. Well, it was a bit of an odd situation. So you're, you're absolutely right. The season had underwent, um, it had started, and there were games ongoing. And apparently... The problem with this is that you get a lot of secondhand information. Apparently, a player in Cape Breton had suffered a head or neck injury. 
and there were considerable rumors flying around about the status of that player's health. Um, at one point, you know, someone had said that they thought that the player had passed away or had become paraplegic. I think at the end of the day, I think the player ended up being fine. But as a result of that, as a result of that injury, the NSSAF basically came out and said, all right, we're canceling rugby for the rest of the season. Okay, wait, the NSSAF, that's... The Nova Scotia School Sport Athletic Federation. Okay. That's the governing body. So they're, they are technically independent of... Uh, what is now the, uh, I guess, the Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia a few years ago did away with individual school boards. So you no longer have like the Halifax Regional School Board, the Annapolis Valley Regional School Board. You have one school board for the province and then there are regional centers for education. The NSSAF is an independent body outside of that. So they're more or less the, the governing body um, for sport in Nova Scotia. So if anything wants to be sanctioned as a school sport, it more or less has to go through the NSSAF. So the official position from the NSSAF is that didn't really have anything to do with that. They had met with the insurer and they had deemed rugby to be too high of a risk and they, they just didn't want to continue it. They thought it was too high a risk for a critical injury. And they had released a report that they had compiled some statistics of, inf- of injuries over a number of years and rugby ended up being like five times higher than the next highest sport. Uh, There's considerable debate about the accuracy of the reported injuries from a sport like football, uh, where I think the report said over five years, they only had 32 reported injuries. Yeah. Which doesn't really reflect what we know about football. Yeah, exactly. Um, So basically what ended up happening is uh, the community was obviously very, very upset. And one thing I, I don't think the NSSAF expected was how tightly knit the rugby community is. I mean, within an hour of the memo being circulated by the NSSAF to, pre- to principals of schools and then subsequently to coaches, I had at least 10 people that I know who are still current coaches reach out and say, what can we do? How can we do this? So I immediately contacted, there's a Facebook group that's closed just to Nova Scotia high school coaches. And because I had coached at Colorado High, I was still a member of it. Uh, I had contact from just about every corner of the province saying, we need this changed. So I penned a letter to uh, the Honorable Zach Churchill, the Minister of Education for Nova Scotia, basically saying, we want you to review this. I know that they're not an independent body, but as the Minister of Education, you need to review this. And so it sounds like all of this came along very quickly. It sounds like support mobilized almost overnight. It, support support mobilized, I would say, within minutes. Right. It there were you know planned contact to the minister. There was a demand for review from the NSSAF. This was the weekend that they were set to do their spring awards banquet. Um, so there, the NSSAF board was actually in Halifax meeting at the Nova Center, and they had a number of schools have their contingents pulled. So Eastern Shore uh, Regional High School, for example, basically all of their delegates to go to this awards luncheon with the board of NSSAF were their rugby players. And the official position from the rugby coach there was that all of their players said, we're not going to an NSSAF banquet if they're canceling rugby. So they had players respond that way. There was a rally outside the uh, Nova Center on the Saturday when literally hundreds of people turned up basically and again this is within 24 hours of this decision being made to protest it so i mean the rugby community is a very tight-knit community and is very well organized when it needs to be so there was a very quick and sharp response to it basically what ended up happening was within a matter of days um, the nssaf maintained that they were not going to have a rugby league 
But they conceded that if Rugby Nova Scotia were to take over organizing and supervising the league, the high schools could still continue on using the high school colors, using their jerseys, using the fields that they had reserved for it. So ultimately, the season was saved and they were able to make up the, the relatively short period of time that was lost. I mean, that's good to hear that there was some movement on that. And it seems like they listened to community and some public support. But where are we at today with that? As far as I know right now, the the last position that they had is that the NSSAF still isn't going to sanction rugby to be a sport under their umbrella, but they're working with Rugby Nova Scotia so that there will continue to be a high school league in some format. Whether it's one of the NSSAF sanctioned sports or not, I think is still remaining to be seen, but there will still continue to be high school rugby as it once existed in Nova Scotia, just whoever the regulatory body is at this point. One thing I did wonder is, was there any discussion or thought put into maybe some rule changes? Because if the concern was injuries and safety, rather than getting rid of the sport at the high school level or not sanctioning it. Was there any thought, you know, given to perhaps rule changes that would promote safety? As far as I know, that wasn't something that had been considered. I know the rules that are being used by uh, basically any youth rugby across Canada are the rules that are set out from uh, World Rugby, the former uh, International Rugby Board. Uh, there are specific rules that are that pertain to youth rugby that are intended to prevent injuries from younger people, like not being able to push a scrum more than a meter or things like that. So there are rules that already existed that are meant to keep the game safer for younger people. Um, I don't think that that had been anything that the NSSAF had considered and whatnot. Um, I mean, the in recent years, basically since I was in high school, I graduated high school in 2004. Uh, and at that time, all of our games were played on real turf. We were playing on grass fields. Um, but since then, I know there's been some issue with having grass fields open early enough to be able to complete a season. Uh, so basically every game, at least in the Halifax region, has been played on our official turf for the last number of years. When I moved back from Ottawa and started coaching again, that's every single game we played was on, on artificial turf. And I mean, there's countless statistics out there to show that artificial turf is that much harder on the body. There's greater incidences of concussion, yep. joint injury, and it's not just for rugby, it's for soccer. Yeah, football. I've played soccer on artificial turf or artificial grass and it's different. It's a lot harder <laughs> it's on the very body. It's different, yeah. So, I mean, if they were looking to do something like that, I mean, if there was a way that they could have an agreement with HRM or the province generally to be able to bring the game back to proper turf, I think that would probably alleviate quite a number of the injuries that they see. The other part of it, too, is and it, since Rowan Stringer passed away in Ottawa, in, I think in 2012 or 2013, especially with the introduction of Rowan's Law in Ontario, rugby across the world, but especially in Canada, has responded very, very well to head injury concussion protocols. So when you see this disparity in reported injuries between sports like soccer, hockey, football, according to NSSAS statistics, I think that that speaks more to the honesty of rugby players in reporting these conditions. And I, I honestly think that the NSSAS decision to cancel rugby the way that they did put more players at risk for sports outside of rugby because the whole reason behind it and the, i see you're saying it, it might incentivize well, players to not report concussions or it yeah it'd drive it underground i mean that was the issue when when rowan stringer passed away is that that was this the first instance of starting to have real serious attention paid to concussions and there was an issue with players intentionally not reporting symptoms because they didn't want to be benched for a game so you imagine if there is 
this image of you know not wanting to be benched for a game so i'm not going to tell the coach that i'm dizzy i'm not going to tell the coach that i don't remember what happened you imagine what that would do to a football player who potentially suffered a concussion saying well if i report this maybe they're going to cancel football next year it's way more than missing a game yeah yeah for sure this is something that i'm going to continue to look into and keep on top of. I just find it interesting. I do a lot of work with sporting organizations. I guess we're kind of all in this together. We want to promote safety, but also, and we spoke about this before we started recording, we just spoke about the the power and the the benefit, the unity of sports teams and bringing people together. I want to shift gears now though to law, right? And why we're here, we're here in your law firm in your boardroom recording. And I wanted to just talk about your legal career a bit. Our careers are, are interesting in that they mirror a bit, right? So we, we went to law school together. I articled here in Halifax, you articled in Ottawa. I went to Ottawa after articles and you came back to Halifax. Yeah. I know you articled at a civil litigation a firm. You did a little bit of construction as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's absolutely correct. And then after articling, you moved into criminal defense. Yeah. So tell me about that transition of not only moving back to Halifax and understand this is your home. Yeah. Right. So, so there's that, but really from a practice area where you're going from the construction lien act, the rules of civil procedure to the criminal code. I mean, what was that transition like as a new lawyer? It was a little bit odd. I mean, I, I had a bit of a background in it. I mean, the way that I kind of came through this is my grandfather was an RCMP officer and he was absolutely my hero right from the time that I was a kid. I wanted to join the RCMP. And as I was going through university, I, I started looking at law school and I started thinking about it about third or fourth year. And I thought, well, I'll write the LSAT. And if I do all right, I'll apply to law school. Otherwise, I'm off to depot. And then I wrote the LSAT. What's, wait, what's depot? Depot is the training program for RCMP. Gotcha, gotcha. So you were going to yeah. follow in his footsteps yeah. if law school didn't work out. Yeah. So I wrote the LSATs and I did all right. And I, I applied to law school and I thought, you know what? If I get into law school, great, I'll go. If I don't, I'm off to depot. So I applied to a couple of schools and I got in. So I thought, you know what? I've, I've made it this far. I might as well go. And as I was going through, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I mean, there was a lot of things in law that interested me. I, I've been an athlete my whole life. So sports agency was something that interested me, things like that. But criminal law was always kind of in the background. And in third year, um, I mean, with my grandfather being an RCMP officer, my aunt works for the Attorney General of New Brunswick. In going through this, I thought in my head, I'm going to be a prosecutor. I'm, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So in third year, I took the criminal clinic at Dal and they assigned me to... Dal Legal Aid Clinic. Well, no, they have a separate program. So the Dal Legal Aid Clinic, you run the, the clinic out of their office on right. Gottagen Street. Right. But with the Dal Criminal Law Program uh, Clinic, you get assigned to basically either a Crown or a defense practitioner in the community, whether it's someone from legal uh, aid or a different firm. I so see. in telling, so the, the Honorable Judge uh, Barbara Beach was one of the instructors, as was uh, Jim Gumpert for the Crown and Stan McDonald for the defense. And basically you have like a small interview with them as the class starts and whatnot. And you tell them kind of what your background is, what your interests are. And I, I told them in no uncertain terms, it's my intention to be a prosecutor when I'm, when I'm done this, you know, I'm articling with a civil litigation firm, but I'm going to be a prosecutor. So of course they kind of flipped the script on me and they assigned me to a defense firm. The, the interesting thing with the defense firm that I was assigned to uh, Newton and associates where I ultimately ended up when I came back to Nova Scotia, um, Nova Scotia being as small as it is with two degrees of separation, I had gone to high school with the the managing partner, Brian Newton's two of his kids. 
and the other one of the other partners, Pat McEwen, actually coached me my last year of hockey. Yeah, that so, sounds like Nova Scotia. Yeah. Of course, I got assigned to them. I don't think I don't think any of my instructors knew that I had that connection to Newton Associates. But of course, I wound up there. And over the course of that semester, I absolutely loved doing criminal work. Mm-hmm. So it was always something that was in the back of my mind. So I had a little bit of a background to it. But coming from like a mid-sized firm where you've got tons of support staff, you're getting a bi-weekly salary, you're, you know, you've got work that's being given to you there. You know, there's a, the firm's well-established enough that there's a ton of work coming in that you've always got stuff there to coming back to a firm in Nova Scotia, which is a much smaller community than, than Eastern Ontario, having to build a practice being on a fee split, things like that. It, it was it was kind of culture shock. Let's dig into that. You mentioned a few things, and I know there's law students listening and newly called lawyers listening. So let's dig into that. You, you mentioned building a practice yeah. as a as a new lawyer. So you started at Newton and Associates. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned fee split. I mean, can you explain some of these concepts here? Sure. So it more in in smaller cities across the the country, and definitely is the case here in Halifax. Typically, when you're a young associate, you're not being given a salary. I mean, some of the bigger firms here uh, certainly pay their associates a salary. Um, but typically, if you're in a smaller firm, you're kind of in an eat what you kill scenario. So my my agreement with Newton and Associates when I started was a 50-50 fee split. So for every dollar that I brought in, I took home 50 cents. Um, and that's the way it is with a lot of small firms. So if you're if you're especially in criminal law, so if you're starting out as a first year associate in criminal law in a community like Halifax, and I would imagine it's the same for cities that are of similar size, you really need to work to get an income. And there there are a lot of hungry months when you're first starting out trying to build a practice. The fee split situation, I mean, I started my own firm. The fee split situation sounds just like what I encountered in the sense that you have to build your own practice and you're building it from scratch. So, you know, you're mentioning a 50-50 split and I've heard of this before, but just with respect to that split, how do you get, how do you get started, right? Like how do you get that first client? They were able to give me a few files. So, I mean, they, Newton and Associates have been established for quite a while there. They were known as being a good criminal defense firm. Um, so if a cold call came in and it was a file that, you know, was too small for one of the partners to handle, I mean, legal aid certificates were my bread and butter and they still form a large part of my practice. Okay. So they'll direct clients to you. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a situation in which they say, okay, well, they're calling this firm, therefore that's that's not you. You didn't. Yeah. The work didn't originate from you. So they'll direct clients to you, and, and you get the flip, the yeah. split that way. Yeah, and they did that as much as they could. I mean, that the I guess the the cast off like that wasn't quite enough to build an entire practice. Like I still had to work at it. I mean, I was very fortunate in that when I joined Newton and Associates, we still had basically a contract with Legal Aid to do cells in Dartmouth. So anybody who was in custody and needed duty counsel. We had the contract for that. So five days a week, at least one person from our firm was down at the Dartmouth courthouse running bail hearings, doing arraignments, getting people out that way. Um, But that very quickly turned back. Legal Aid took that back a couple of months after I started. We also had a contract with the city to prosecute uh, municipal violations or uh, regulatory violations like speeding, bylaws, things like that. That's all in Nova Scotia, unlike in places like Ottawa, that's done at night. So you would do your regular practice during the day and then you would prosecute motor vehicle offenses and things like that at night. So I I was lucky enough to have that kind of as a basis to at least have some kind of income. But 
sales in particular was a great way to try and pick up clients because if they were happy with what you did, if you were able to get them out or if you were successfully able to run a bail hearing, they'd often call the firm and ask to retain you for their, their substantive matter. So as a law student, I know I heard this a ton and maybe you heard it as well. And everyone said, if you want to get work or if you want to get new clients, you just have to do good work. Yeah. It almost sounds like a tautology, like <laughs> just do good work and you'll get more work. In your experience, is that true? Is that accurate? Well, in, in some respects it is. I mean, word of mouth is is huge for the practice of law, especially in criminal law, uh, because you don't have your typical networking opportunities for something like criminal law. Like you can't just go to a networking event and say, hey, by the way, if you ever get arrested, call me. Um a lot of times you will get referrals. So if you are successful in either securing an acquittal or getting a decent resolution for a client, if they ever have a friend or family member, they'll say, hey, I used this guy. You know, he got me a pretty good result. Go to him. So that's that's part of it. I mean, the other part of it is you just you have to get yourself out there. I mean, you have to, you know, spend time at the court. You have to take the files that you wouldn't necessarily want to take. Find social media helped you at all? Social media, I, I unfortunately didn't make the best use of social media the first couple of years of my practice. I now have my own Facebook page. Uh, we have a, a Facebook page for the firm, but I have an individual Facebook page for me as a lawyer myself. Uh, and that has definitely, definitely helped. And I would highly recommend using it because, I mean, it's by and large, it's a free tool. You can spend money on advertising, but the page itself, you know, every and just getting blog posts out and every time you get higher visibility through something like that, it definitely it gets your name out there. More people see it. Um, that's definitely a tool that I would recommend using. And I, I wish I had used more when I was first starting out. But again, referrals from other lawyers and whatnot. I mean, so if you even just taking a senior lawyer out for a coffee, say, listen, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I buy you, you know, lunch or something like that? Not only will you get some of the wisdom from their practice, but if you if you have a positive relationship with someone like that, oftentimes you'll get a senior lawyer who's either too busy to take on some smaller files or if they have a conflict within their firm, they'll say, you know what, I'm going to give this this young guy or girl a, a chance. Yeah, I'm going to say, you know, we'll refer some business there. So, I mean, the, the networking amongst other lawyers is definitely, definitely huge. I think that's a good tip. But lawyers, you know how, you know, any parent loves talking about their kids. Yeah. I feel like any litigator just loves talking about their cases. Like Absolutely. Just, you know, you can just go on and on and on. So I think that's a good, uh, a good piece of practical advice. So you're at Newton & Associates for about five years. Yeah. And then you make a big leap. Yeah. Tell me about that. It was a little bit out of necessity. So... At that point, so in 2016, there were three partners at Newton Associates. One of them had made the decision that he wanted to go back to having a salaried position and something had opened up for, for him at Legal Aid. So in September of 2017, actually, sorry, he uh, he left and joined Legal Aid, leaving two partners at Newton Associates. We carried on for a little bit and I think the firm had gotten a little bit away from where we had wanted it to be, I think both in terms of expansion and just the way that everybody was operating together. And we all kind of decided that, well, mostly between the partners, but I think everybody at that point was kind of in agreement that we all needed a change of scenery. So around November, we, we decided that Newton Associates was going to dissolve. And uh, when that kind of came out, Peter Planetta, my business partner, approached me and he said, listen, I like the way you work. I think we'd do well together. Why don't we set up a shop together? And and so what are your thoughts at that point? I mean, did you have, uh, what was your working relationship with Peter? We're assuming that it was good because 
I mean, Planeta Hughes, you started yeah. your own firm and it's it's going strong today. But I mean, at that time. Oh, I was I was terrified. I'll be perfectly honest. I was absolutely terrified to, you know, I mean, on the one hand, you know, the I guess the persona that you get from, you know, seeing, you know, legal practice in popular culture and so in different things like that, you look and you think, wow, I'll have my name on the door. That's huge. But then you start thinking about all the little things that go with that. And, you know, well, it's great to see your name and letters on a door of your firm. You start thinking, well, you see your I name. Mean, yeah, you, you see, see your name, name on the bills. Like, <laughs> a few bills, a few invoices. Yeah. yeah but you, you have to be responsible for more. Like, so, I mean, you have to be responsible for your staff and everything like that. So all these things that you didn't necessarily think about that or you didn't have to think about as an associate, you now have to say, well, I'm responsible, you know, to either hire a bookkeeper or to make sure we're doing our GST, HST remittance on time, do our payroll remittance yeah. on time to make sure that we're sticking on budget, that we're, you know, doing appropriate expense recoveries. You know, yeah. when you're an associate, you're not thinking about how many copies you're making on a particular file. But at, when, you know, when yeah, that, you're not thinking about the disbursements. Yeah. yeah. So but when you're when your name's on the door, you're thinking, well, no, man, do I am I really recovering the expenses as best I can? You know, am I making sure that I'm charging every courier fee to the appropriate file? Am I am I making sure that this isn't costing me out of pocket to do this? So yeah. and, and no training on this in law school no. whatsoever. <laughs> whatsoever. Like no training on yeah. the business side of law here. So I, I often compare like if anybody that I know who's never been to law school or anything like that, when they ask about what law school is like or, you know, about be going to become a lawyer, doing the articling thing and everything, the best comparison I can give is it's like you're an electrician, except when you go through trade school, you never lay your hand on a tool. You never go to a job site. You never get any on on site training. But you understand the philosophy of it. You understand the philosophy of why you use copper instead of aluminum wires now. And you understand why you need to use certain protective equipment. Yeah. But you never actually get to put your hands on that protective equipment until you're out in the workforce and they say, go wire this house. Yeah, that's, that's, pretty, apt. that's a pretty apt description. It's, it's definitely something that they don't prepare you for. And I mean, it, that was the biggest fear that I had as I started thinking about it. I said, you know, I, I'm looking at it going, you know, my wife and I are, are expecting our first kids. Um, we're expecting twins at that point. Am I financially ready for this? Am I ready to basically become, you know, someone who employs other people as opposed to just being Absolutely. an Huge employee step. who going and doing my own thing? Right? Huge step. So the firm opens, Planeta Hughes opens January 2018? Technically, Newton & Associates closed January 31st. Planeta Hughes opens its doors on February 5th. So February 2018, we are about a year and a half, yeah. more or less, in. You've talked about the business side, the administrative side, which is taxing, and, and obviously we don't get instruction on that. Year, about a year and a half in, what are your reflections now? Uh, and just what are your reflections overall on partnership? Because it's not just you, right? You've yeah. got, you know, in one, in one way, I'm sure it's helpful because you've got to share the load, share the burden, but yeah. also well, you get into it, but maybe there's some disagreements from time to time. So how do you manage that? Absolutely. I mean, but I mean, it's, it's all about getting that right working relationship. I mean, I had worked pretty close with Peter on a number of files at Newton and Associates. And at the time, that we were looking at gearing down Newton and Associates and starting up the new place. Peter and I had been working pretty hard on a, a relatively high profile murder trial at the time. So we were we were right in the thick of preparing for that and whatnot. 
Um, but it, it's making sure that you can have that appropriate working relationship. And I mean, Peter and I have certainly had our, our handful of disagreements about, you know, things to directions to go with the firm, things like that. But I mean, as long as you have that positive relationship where you can kind of go back and forth, it works really well. And I mean, a year and a half into it, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that we did this. Right. And so you mentioned some disagreements. How do you guys resolve? More or less just debate it out. I mean, it, it's, we've got a good enough relationship that we never kind of leave an argument going, you know, you're an idiot or anything like that. We can usually work it out and we can understand the logic behind the other one's position. So we'll usually, someone will usually say, okay, well, I agree with, with going in that direction. Does it ever just get to like rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> we've never made any, any firm wide decisions over rock, paper, scissors or anything like that. Uh, okay. Well, it's a real shame. I feel like that's a a great way to arbitrate decisions but uh, well i mean at one point we just hired a new associate and we were um at one point trying to figure out you know in terms of which office to take pitting our two associates against each other in either feats of strength or maybe in a board game series of competitions so i mean there's there's always fun ways that you can have fun with decisions with that before we were recording john we were talking about when we came out and we were new lawyers we applied quite liberally (laughs) Um, we were throwing our applications out there and and the situation is is still quite dire maybe even more so what advice would you give to uh, those law students or articling students or new lawyers who are looking to to enter the practice and and really when you're looking at applications what are you looking for in particular Uh, well i mean personal connection always definitely helps so i mean if, if you're able to like if you see a firm's advertising or anything like that talk to someone at the firm, whether it's a partner or not, ask one of the associates that's already there if they want to, you know, go for a coffee and just see what the firm culture is like. That way, if the partners, and certainly when we were hiring our last associate, we asked our existing associate if she knew the applicants, what she thought of them, things like that. So, I mean, establishing those personal connections is huge, but perseverance is, is the ultimate trick. I mean, I everybody kind of finds their their way one way or another and i mean i more or less lucked into lucked into my job i was still living in ottawa when i got this job uh my contract had run out in april 2013 or not april august 2013 uh 2013 um i'd stayed on a little bit longer with the firm that i was with just to finish up some small claims files to help transition the new articling students and I very much had wanted to stay in Ottawa. So I was applying relentlessly there. Uh, any job that I saw, whether it was a particular area of practice that I wanted or not, I was putting out an application. And so we get to Christmas time. I come home for the holidays and was set to go visit my grandmother in New Brunswick, but we were hit with a very bad snowstorm. So we kind of turned back and just happened to be walking through a grocery store and bumped into Brian Newton, who was the managing partner at Newton Associates, wow. who said, well, we're looking for an associate. Why don't you throw us an application and we'll see if we'll we'll interview. So I, I sent him an email with my, my cover letter and my CV on it and flew back to Ottawa. And then uh, mid-January, they contacted me and said, we want to have an interview with you. So I flew back to Nova Scotia again, had an interview with them. And then uh, a week or so later, they they offered me the position. So I packed up everything I had and moved back from Ottawa to, to Halifax. So I remember when I was sending out my applications and I had a little trick where about two weeks after sending out an application to a law firm, I would follow up and I would say, hey, I'm going to be in town. Would you like to have a coffee or whatnot? And I found that to be incredibly effective. I mean, absolutely. being on the other side of that now, you know, I get a lot of applications 
And there's just so many things going on. If you're running your own firm, you have a, your own small firm, and just that follow up, that nudge, hey, I'm going to be in town, and somebody's uh, opening it up, opening themselves up, and availing themselves to you. Oh, sure, why not? And I just found it to be really, really effective. Absolutely. We want to move and, and shift gears now. You know, we're, we're recording on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I don't want to keep you away from uh, the weekend. But, uh, John, you're Minister of Justice of Canada. This is a hypothetical. You're not actually, okay? <laughs> what is one criminal law reform that you would implement? I can think of a number that I would. I mean, I... Being on the defense side of it, I, I'm firmly of the opinion that mandatory minimums are are ineffective, that they unfairly punish people because sentencing really and truly should be something that is a very individualized process. Um, I know that with the, the omnibus bill that just came forward limiting the use of preliminary inquiries, I'm very much a fan of using preliminary inquiries. I think they're a very useful tool in a criminal practitioner's belt. Frankly, from the other side of that, I think if there were to be any any changes to the preliminary inquiry, I, I would like to see a restriction on the Crown's ability to prefer an indictment following a preliminary inquiry. Okay, so for us non-criminal <laughs> lawyers here, prefer an indictment. Can you uh, explain that? So basically, if, if the Crown prefers an indictment, the matter straight proceeds to trial. So a Crown basically from the laying of an information that's an indictable matter through to the eve before trial can prefer an indictment. So the typical ways that it's used by the prosecution is either to subvert the use of a preliminary inquiry. So if the Crown wants to prevent defense from holding a preliminary inquiry, they'll prefer the indictment and just go straight to Supreme Court. Or following a preliminary inquiry, if defense is successful in challenging committal on a particular set of charges, Oftentimes, you see it used for something like first or second degree murder, and defense will be challenging committal on that and saying that perhaps committal is warranted on manslaughter, but not on murder, either in the first or second degree. Uh, if the judge agrees with defense counsel, you'll often see Crown counsel prefer an indictment on second or first degree murder and having the matter proceed on on that. I would, I would very much like to see that power restricted. So, John, just before we close up, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe... Plug in, plug the law firm a bit and just tell the listeners about what you guys do and why they might want to get in contact with you. Yeah. So when when Peter and I opened this place up, we initially had it focused on being a purely criminal uh, defense firm. However, kind of in growing over the last year and a half, we've realized that, you know, we can we can practice in much more broad areas like that. I started bringing a bit of commercial construction litigation back into my practice. Peter started uh expanding his practice as well. And Hannah's doing a ton of great work with prison law. Uh, Hannah's a, a new associate you have. Yeah, she's she's our associate that joined us uh, a couple months after we opened last year. We uh, hired her just before her call in 2018. And she's been doing fantastic work in terms of prison law uh, and is continuing to, to kind of go in that direction, doing a lot of prison law, human rights law stuff. Um, but yeah, we've got a, a really broad area of practice now. Uh, we're still a litigation heavy firm. We don't really do a whole lot of solicitors work, but um, we just, you know, we, we focus in and we try and deliver the absolute best product to our clients that we can. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've been as successful as we have been. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, buddy. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please follow us on SoundCloud. 
subscribe on iTunes podcast and feel free to share and spread the word.